Breathing through chemical smoke has been described as drowning on dry land. When one imagines chemical warfare, they often imagine a striking image of filthy soldiers choking in trenches through thick fogs of yellow-green gas. In 2014, Chief Justice Roberts wrote the majority opinion in the Supreme Court's decision in Bond versus United States. His opinion starts with this, quote, the horrors of chemical warfare were vividly captured by John Singer Sargent in his 1919 painting called Gas. The nearly life-sized work depicts two lines of soldiers blinded by mustard gas, clinging single file to orderlies guiding them to an improvised aid station. There, they would receive little treatment and no relief. Many suffered for weeks only to have the gas claim their lives. The soldiers were shown staggering through piles of comrades too seriously burned to even join the procession. The painting reflects the devastation that Sargent witnessed in the aftermath of the Second Battle of Arras during World War I. That battle and others like it led to an overwhelming consensus in the international community that toxic chemicals should never again be used as weapons of warfare against human beings. Today, that objective is reflected in the International Convention on Chemical Weapons, which has now been ratified or acceded to by 197 countries. The United States ratified the Chemical Weapons Treaty in 1997. To fulfill the United States' obligations under that convention, Congress enacted the Chemical Weapons Convention Implementation Act of 1998. The act makes it a federal crime for a person to use or possess any chemical weapon, and it punishes violators with severe penalties. It is a statute that, like the convention it implements, deals with crimes of deadly seriousness and is intended to prevent the creation, stockpiling, and proliferation of chemical weapons in the U.S. for sale and export to countries seeking to use them in war. Twenty years later, the international treaty that the U.S. signed in 1993 to ban and stop the proliferation of chemical weapons in warfare around the globe would lead us to an unusual suspect in an unusual place. Carol Ann Bond, a 34-year-old microbiologist living with her husband in the suburbs of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Bond was not a guerrilla fighter. She was not making 6,000-pound steel cylinders of chlorine gas to be released over trenches in Belgium. She was not spraying 19.3 million gallons of chemical herbicides over Vietnam. She was not using white phosphorus against civilians in Fallujah or Syria. She was not a soldier on the front lines, nor was she a guerrilla fighter, nor was she even a military contractor. She was an angry wife. In 2005, she not only found out her husband had been cheating on her with her best friend, Merlinda Haynes, her husband was also the father of her best friend's baby. What Bond did next to get back at her ex-best friend was later described by Chief Justice Roberts as a, quote, amateur attempt by a jilted wife to injure her husband's lover, which ended up only causing a minor thumb burn readily treated by rinsing with cold water. And yet, here Bond was, 
appealing a conviction handed down in the middle of nowhere Pennsylvania for engaging in chemical warfare in violation of the International Chemical Weapons Treaty signed by the United States in 1993. In this episode of Rebuttal, we are going to get into the nitty-gritty of chemical warfare, international law, federalism, and most importantly, Carol Ann Bond's clusterfuck of a love life. Can you be convicted under an international treaty as a regular citizen, digging your keys into the side of his pretty little souped-up four-wheel drive? Let's find out. The 2014 Supreme Court case of Bond versus U.S. doesn't start in 2014. It doesn't even start in 1993. No, it starts really thousands of years earlier because in reality, the specter of poisonous weapons has haunted combatants for centuries. Ancient armies choked their enemies with smoke from burning sulfur and tar In 600 BC, the Athenians poisoned their enemies' drinking water with roots of Helleborus, which caused severe diarrhea and helped the Athenians to victory. During the Peloponnesian War in 400 BC, the armies burned sulfur and tar to produce a noxious smoke and choke their enemies. In 200 BC, the Carthaginians pretended to retreat from their military camp, leaving behind wine poisoned with a narcotic. They later returned and killed their incapacitated enemies. Hundreds of years later, medieval armies spoiled wells with dead bodies and animals. During this period, poisoning water supplies with corpses was, in fact, a standard tactic. During the Crusades, combatants attempted to spread the plague by putting the dead bodies into enemy water supplies and camps. In the 17 and 1800s, colonial armies willingly spread diseases to their enemies through clothing and water supplies. In 1763, British forces under the command of Sir Geoffrey Amherst sent, at his insistence, blankets contaminated with smallpox to Native American tribes. The blankets caused a breakout of the disease, but then simple contact with Europeans caused most of the Native American deaths as a result of the spread of that disease. During the American Civil War, both armies commonly polluted water sources to incapacitate the other side, which finally led to the modern chemical warfare you probably think of immediately when you think of this topic. On a beautiful spring afternoon on April 22, 1915, French troops peering out of trenches and bunkers watched a yellow-green cloud rise from the German defensive line. At first, they thought the German bunkers were on fire until they started choking. In truth, members of a special unit of the German army had opened the valves on more than 6,000 steel cylinders they had filled with pressurized liquid chlorine and then buried in trenches along their defensive perimeter at Ypres, Belgium, more than three weeks earlier. Within 10 minutes, 160 tons of chlorine gas drifted over the opposing French trenches, engulfing all of those who were downwind. The gas moved through the ranks, filling men's lungs and leaving sacks of blood hanging from their skin. They were blinded and unable to breathe immediately. A British soldier described the pandemonium that flowed from the front lines to the rear, quote, 
I watched figures running wildly in confusion over the fields. Greenish-gray clouds swept down upon them, turning yellow as they traveled over the country, blasting everything they they touched and shriveling up the vegetation. Then there, staggered into our midst, were French soldiers, blinded, coughing, chests heaving, faces an ugly purple color, lips speechless with agony, and behind them in the gas-soaked trenches, we learned that they had left hundreds of dead and dying comrades. One Canadian soldier described it, quote, Our trenches were shortly filled, with the screaming French soldiers crowding in from out left. They were mostly blind and choking to death, and as fast as they died, they were just heaved right back behind the trench. Though the French and Allied forces were entirely unprepared for this new weapon on the battlefield, the Germans were just as unprepared for how effective the destruction would be. The gas had forced the French units to run, creating a four-and-a-half-mile gap in the Allies' lines almost immediately. The German forces were so shocked by how immediate the effect that the gas had been on the Allies' lines that they could not even advance fast enough to take full advantage of the gap. The Germans were met with bodies colored black, blue, and green with their tongues hanging out, wide eyes, and green froth drooling from their mouths. Not even they could understand the gravity of what they had unleashed. On that beautiful spring afternoon in April 1915, the Germans had just carried out the very first attack that would usher in the modern era of chemical warfare. Now, modern armies have choked, blistered, asphyxiated, and poisoned each other and civilians with a variety of chemical agents and have the technology to do much, much worse. Chemical weapons caused 1.3 million casualties during World War I, The casualty count had a chilling effect on the nations of the world and led to the establishment of a new treaty in 1925. That treaty was called the, quote, Geneva Protocol for the Prohibition of the Use in War of Asphyxiating Poisonous or Other Gases and of Bacteriological Methods of Warfare. That is the title, the one big run-on sentence um, that, you know, everyone shortens just to the Geneva Protocol because that's easier. That Geneva Protocol opened for signature in 1925 and outlawed the use of chemical and biological weapons in war against other treaty signatories. The protocol did not, however, prohibit all use of chemical weapons or preclude the development of new technologies or the stockpiling of weapons. Additionally, many nations that signed the protocol reserved the rights to retaliate against any country that attacked them first with chemical weapons and to use chemical weapons thereafter without restrictions against any nations which had not signed the protocol. The Geneva Protocol's shortcomings proved significant because obviously many nations, both parties and non-parties to the protocol, have since conducted chemical warfare with devastating consequences. In 1935, Italy became the first country to use chemical weapons after the signing of the Geneva Protocol that we know of, okay, a mere 10 years after the Geneva Protocol was signed in 1925. The Italians used chemical weapons in their conquest of Ethiopia, claiming that Ethiopian atrocities justified their chemical attacks. 
Despite their reasoning, the Italians' use of chemical weapons served a notice to the world that the Geneva Protocol was imperfect. You don't fucking say, okay? That is the sticking point and the overall theme of international treaties and protocols and conventions that, you know, uh, we could talk about for hours and hours is the sticking point of actual enforcement and the sticking point of, you know, self-governing, really. Because once you get to the UN, right, to a big room with every single leader of every nation in the world, um, that is the highest that you can go. There is no higher governing body that can really realistically go in and prosecute violations of the treaties that these countries sign uh, without really declaring an act of war, right? Without essentially just being a an extension arm of more warfare, right? Obviously, that is a very general, general broad statement. Of course, there is, you know, um, the international... Crimes Convention, there are a lot of other committees within the UN that seek to and have been established to address human rights violations and wrongs throughout the world um, and, you know, do have some success in in doing so. But, of course, the most prevalent uh, of these crimes that are perpetrated are uh, most often perpetrated by the big leaders, by the big, by the big five, right? The big, the big hoes in the conference. And that will be, you know, oh, I don't know, the US, the UK, right? Um, Russia, China, major massive countries that have all this political power are so often committing war crimes in their country and in other countries that go unaddressed, that might be noticed by the UN, okay, by its councils uh, in in reports and letters, in pleas and in, 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 you know, during meetings and phone calls and group chats. But uh, yeah, an example of one of those uh, major, major human rights violations uh, that the U.S. has made is Guantanamo Bay, okay? Go to my episode about it. I believe it was like episode seven, okay? It was um, – it's horrifying to hear about the human rights violations committed against general, literal, completely innocent civilians, completely innocent people um, just because they were sold to the United States and and the United States basically used it as a reason to just torture people. Um, and Guantanamo is, st- Guantanamo is still not closed to this day. There are still people being held there and people who have not been released and people who uh, have not even had uh, the right to be uh, have a trial for their crimes. I get into it in that episode. It, it'll piss you off. Um, but that's just an example, right? Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. 
Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. The Italians' use of chemical warfare in Ethiopia in 1935, coupled with the increasing threat of war in Europe during the late 1930s, inspired many nations to promote or create their own chemical weapons programs to ensure they could protect themselves. The increased research and development during that time allowed all of the major combatants to build large stockpiles because, again, was it in the Geneva Protocol? And the protocol let you uh, get your lick back anyway against people who were using weapons against you. So really, like, this – it was a piece of paper with a bunch of, you know, cute stamps on it. That was all that working was. Despite the vast buildup and stockpiling, however, thank God – Neither the Axis nor the Allied forces used chemical weapons in actual combat during World War II. A massive fucking asterisk next to that, okay, that, you know, most of the articles that I'm like have basically compiled all this information for and I'm reading bits and pieces from, okay, that sentence alone, all right, like, oh, like didn't use chemical weapons, T God, thank goodness completely does not take into account or consider the fact that the A-bomb, okay, our nuclear weaponry was absolutely chemical warfare, okay, on Hiroshima, on Nagasaki. Of course it was, because the United States just never is never is always blameless, right? So apparently they're considering that in the grand scheme of chemical warfare, okay, as like not chemical warfare. So they're they're saying, okay, no chemical warfare, weapons, weapons, no chemical weapons were used in World War II. Okay, even if you want to get away with that, even if you want to claim or or stay or say that the bomb itself doesn't count because the bomb itself was like explosive device, which is technically not Okay, the actual root of the definition of chemical warfare, which I'll tell you, or you know, what chemical weapon, which I will read to you in a second. Um, all of the tests and disgusting chemical experiments and use of chemicals to kill mass amounts of people um, in Europe with in the concentration camps in the Holocaust. Okay, by the Nazis. Um, that that is chemical warfare to me. Um, And also in, which a lot of people don't understand and know about, the Japanese, okay, forces, um, troops, they committed the most heinous crimes against humanity that also involved chemical warfare, that also involved the use of biological toxic attacks against its prisoners, okay, civilians that they captured. Although these war crimes were perpetrated throughout Asia, most of the victims were Chinese civilians, Korean civilians, civilians in New Guinea. It was horrifying. And yes, it was men, women, and children, okay, in mass. The Imperial Japanese Army Air Service took part in conducting chemical and biological attacks on civilians during the Second Sino-Japanese War and World War II. The use of such weapons was generally prohibited by international agreements previously signed by Japan, including the Hague Conventions in 1899 and 1907, which banned the use of poison or poisoned weapons in warfare. Okay? The Hague Conventions obviously took place prior to... 1925 with the Geneva 
the Geneva situation, okay, the protocol, the protocizi. Um, but we, I could I could go into like a conventions all day long. Um, snooze. We're kind of jumping ahead because really, right? The Hague conventions, okay, 18, 1899 and nineteen oh seven. Great. When did World War One happen? Nineteen, right? Nineteen fourteen to nineteen nineteen. Yeah, not really super helpful for for uh, the first modern era chemical warfare attack that the Germans started in nineteen fifteen on a beautiful spring day. Right? Hague Convention didn't really prevent that shit. And I'm I'm this episode is is talking about solutions, <laughs> talking about solutions, right? Right. Okay. Essentially, the Japanese had Japan, okay, the country of Japan through their emperor had signed pretty much every fucking treaty and convention and charter addressing prisoners of war, addressing chemical warfare, biological warfare, addressing, you know, human rights violations, addressing the treatment of civilians, addressing the treatment of noncombatants, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That little piece of ink on paper, right, did literally nothing to even quell a hesitation in their imperial armies and imperial strategy to absolutely wipe out millions, millions of people, civilians in Asia and Chinese civilians, Korean civilians, everywhere just for funsies like so much of it is is so horrific and there are documentaries and amazing um papers and long long uh books written about this that I very highly encourage you to read even just looking up on wikipedia like japanese war crimes will have your eyes just wide as hell um because i don't think that it's it's emphasized enough that the idea that chemical weapons Biological weapons, toxin, toxic weapons were not used in World War II. Like, oh, the you know, the world powers for everything they did really held the fuck off. That is a lie. That is a straight lie. And I've seen it. I'm staring at it in about 20 fucking academic papers, legal papers, legal scholars, law review articles, all of these things. Research done then and now, okay, where, uh, where people who talk and want to discuss seriously the impact of international treaties and international cooperation in stopping chemical warfare, they, with their full body chest and their eyes dead set on you unblinking, say that chemical warfare wasn't used in World War II. Yes, it fucking was. Yes, it was. You cannot have a legitimate conversation about actually combating chemical warfare if you're only talking about Gas released in the trenches on a beautiful spring afternoon in Belgium. Like, can we be serious, you know? And nowadays especially, right, chemical warfare, okay, is most prevalently and repeatedly and brazenly used against civilians. That is the fuck of it all, right? The fuck of all of this is that we may have done something to prevent actual soldier-to-soldier chemical warfare being used, okay? Like, uh, seen as a dirty fight type thing, okay? Of when you're, when, yes, you literally have enemy combatants on another side of a field uh, wanting to kill you, and you're about to duke it out, but we all agree that it is not a gentlemanly way to go out 
for you in order to win the war, right, or win the battle against warriors, soldiers who agreed to fight in this war or whatever, you will not use gas, mustard gas, poison gas, chlorine gas. You will not use chemical warfare. You will not, you know, try to get them sick. You will not do any of that shit, okay? It's it's gun to gun, steel to steel, fight like men type bullshit, okay? That does not account for all of the chemical, biological, and toxic warfare that has been perpetrated against specifically civilians that has barely made a dent in anyone's military, enemy combatant or not, but has specifically had a devastating effect on the civilian pop and has somehow skated around a clear violation, quote unquote, of these treaties, of the Hague Conventions, of the Geneva Right Treaty Protocol, of all of these chemical warfare treaties and protocols and conventions, it has not been considered a violation technically of those because it wasn't used against combatants, which feels like, um, como se dice, so fucking, so fucking stupid and so vile and so disgusting and so hideous, right? It feels like the biggest loophole. It feels like a loophole that, is just a sinkhole, right? Where everyone can just shove all of their shitty human rights violations into. And we all just close our eyes. And that's what we've been doing, okay, for decades, since 1925, specifically, all right? The way that scholars who actually are pissed about the lack of coverage and seriousness that that academics and, and historians and and the American public specifically takes the Japanese war crimes during this period, during World War II, is they open it with a reality and a fact, which is that Nazi war criminals, okay, the Nazis at the time, right, who were a buddy-buddy on the Axis side with Japan, right, were learning about the things Japan was doing in Asia while the Nazis were holocausting and they turned to japan and said that is that's just don't stop that's fucking what the fuck like they were shocked and horrified if you don't feel the need to google it now that probably will give you like some some pressure okay and the fact that we didn't learn about that in school as an american who was in the public school system in two different states um Throughout her childhood in several different several different elementary schools, several different middle schools, several different high schools, I moved a lot. Um, that like you tell most people today that that happened and they would stare at you dumbly. It's actually it's just such a fucking travesty that the history, actual real history of Asia and Asian cultures, is so just not even touched on and not properly taught to our schools when our entire focus is just America, 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 USA, USA, USA from our standpoint, and then a white Europe. That's all we fucking care about. Like, be serious. Anyways, since World War II, chemical weapons technology has proliferated greatly in developing nations. Aside from alleged Soviet use in Afghanistan and employment of riot control agents and herbicides by the United States in Vietnam, developing nations 
are allegedly the ones accounting for most of the apparent breaches of the Geneva Protocol during the post-World War II time period. But, right, that's a little skewed as well, okay? Because absolutely, the big nations with their signatures on the dotted line of the Geneva Protocol were and have been using chemical weapons. Although, yes, it was mentioned in that latter sentence that I just said, oh, the United States, you know, using it in Vietnam herbicides and then just brushing over it. Uh, let's get into what that was, okay? As part of Operation Ranch Hand, the counterinsurgency strategy commenced by the Kennedy administration at the beginning of the Vietnam War, the United States military sprayed an estimated 19.3 million gallons of chemical herbicides over South Vietnam and other areas of Indochina from 1961 to 1971. Statistics show that Agent Orange, it was called, was the most widely sprayed herbicide in Vietnam. The military's purpose in using herbicides included, quote, protecting its troops from ambush by defoliating certain areas of land to deprive the Democratic Pub Republic of Vietnam and the National Liberation Front enemy forces of food and jungle cover. Despite opposition to the military use of herbicides in war, the U.S. government interpreted the international laws of war to permit its use of herbicides in Vietnam, because of course it fucking did. Oh, you mean destroying the crops, the land, the entire subsistence of a nation, including its civilians, is going to maybe implicate an international war treaty against the use of chemical warfare. Yeah, but we're interpreting it. We're interpreting it differently. We're interpreting it to allow it. Because the per like that's the thing, that's the fuck of it all, is that our interpretation, okay? The US's interpretation said, "Oh, well like our purpose isn't like isn't to like kill people. It's just to take away their food and water and cover and land and destroy it and poison it. That's not killing people." If 2 plus 2 is 4, and five plus five is ten. What the fuck is this? What the fuck is this? The U.S. government considered Agent Orange safe for human exposure at the time it used the herbicides. One Pentagon advisor stated that a military application of herbicides in Vietnam leads to no long-term effects, quote-unquote. Don't trust anything we fucking say as a country. Just know that. No fucking that. But as early as 1964, several members of the scientific community opposed the use of herbicides as a tactical weapon of war because of the unknown consequences of exposure to human health and the environmental impact of the application of such a large quantity of herbicides. No fucking shit. They called for an end to the use of herbicides in Vietnam. They were scared and that no independent scientist had ever surveyed the ecological and human health effects of how of, of this, of the, this scale wide-scale spread and spray of these herbicides. And they were also concerned by the presence of dioxin in Agent Orange, a toxic chemical byproduct of the production process of military-grade herbicides. By 1969, dioxin was shown to cause birth defects in mice. Scientists extrapolated that dioxin would similarly pose a danger to human health, although they could not foretell specific health problems. The Nixon administration ended its use of Agent Orange in 1970 amid concerns regarding potential health dangers. These health effects remain a controversial issue today because causality between many of the health effects and exposure to the herbicidal chemicals is not considered to be conclusively established by the scientific community as a whole. 
People in many countries claim health problems as a result of exposure to Agent Orange. In addition to the Vietnamese persons and American veterans who have filed lawsuits relating to exposure to Agent Orange, military veterans of nations allied with the American war effort in Vietnam, including Australia, South Korea, and New Zealand, have claimed drastic health effects from wartime exposure. The reason why the United States did not technically breach the Geneva Protocol when they sprayed herbicides all over Vietnam um, was because they didn't actually ratify the treaty in 1925. No, they did not. The U.S. said they supported it, but we didn't sign. We did not sign the dotted line because, of course, we fucking didn't. We did not actually ratify the treaty, okay, the Geneva Protocol, you know, trying to stop the spread of chemical weapons um, until after the Vietnam War in January 1975. The United States had not ratified the Geneva Treaty basically because of their own shitty interpretation of it and no one else's agreement to their interpretation of it, okay? While the official English text version of the treaty expressly prohibits, quote, asphyxiating, poisonous, or other gases, end quote, the official French text version prohibits asphyxiating, poisonous, or similar gases. The United States, focusing on the French version's, quote, similar gases, interpreted the Geneva Protocol not to preclude irritants or herbicides because their effects are not similar to more lethal chemical agents like nerve or mustard gas. Be serious. The United States' use of riot control agents and herbicides in Vietnam prompted the United Nations to then clarify the Geneva Protocol's prohibitions. They really said, are you, are you fucking fucking around? Shut the fuck up. They clarified it, okay, as, quote, prohibiting any chemical agents of warfare chemical substances, whether gaseous, liquid, or solid, which might be employed because of their direct toxic effects on man, animals, or plants, end quote. Like, like you. oh, well, chemical weapons, they weren't like, they were killing plants, what's the big deal? Like, the UN said bet. Like, that's fucking chemical warfare, you dumb fucking idiots. You dumb Americans. God fuck. Additionally, the Conference on Disarmament, a United Nations subsidiary, stepped up negotiations to create a new treaty to conclusively and unconditionally prohibit chemical and biological weapons as prescribed in the Geneva Protocol. So that's your harmless, quote-unquote, herbicide spraying uh, that was that was done during Vietnam, okay, that we brushed over, all right? Just as an example of the fact that the Geneva Protocol really had no teeth, really had no fucking teeth. In 1995, the AUN Shinrikyo Doomsday Religious Cult, I'm sorry if I butchered that, became the first terrorist group to use chemical weapons. The most blatant breach since the Geneva Protocol, however, occurred from 1983 to 1988 when Iraq used chemical weapons against Iran. Iraq claimed it used chemical weapons in retaliation for Iranian chemical attacks. Without substantiating any Iranian use, the Iraqis incorporated chemical weapons into all of their combat operations. Additionally, from 1987 and 1988, Iraq used chemical weapons on its own Kurdish civilian population, which the government perceived to be allied with Iran. Iraq has also maintained a large stockpile of chemical weapons since the 1980s, prompting the coalition forces in Desert Shield, Desert Storm from 1990 to 1991 to greatly adjust their operations to meet the chemical threat of the Iraqi military. This led to the Chemical Weapons Convention which happened, okay, 
In January 1993, specifically, the Chemical Weapons Convention opened for signature in January 1993, and it needed 65 countries to ratify it in order to enter into force. In 1997, the President of the United States, upon the advice and consent of the Senate, finally ratified the convention on the prohibition of the development, production, stockpiling, and use of chemical weapons and on their destruction commonly known as the Chemical Weapons Convention, okay, or treaty. The nations that ratified the convention had bold aspirations for it, quote, general and complete disarmament under strict and effective international control, including the prohibition and elimination of all types of weapons of mass destruction. This purpose traces its origin to World War I, when, quote, over a million casualties, up to 100,000 of them fatal, are estimated to have been caused by chemicals, a large part following the introduction of mustard gas in 1917. The atrocities of that war led to the community of nations to adopt the 1925 Geneva Protocol, which prohibited the use of chemicals as a method of warfare. Up to the 1990s, however, chemical weapons remained in use both in and out of wartime with devastating consequences. Iraq's use of nerve agents and mustard gas during its war with Iran in the 1980s contributed to international support for a renewed, more effective chemical weapons ban. In 1994 and 1995, long-held fears of the use of chemical weapons by terrorists were realized when Japanese extremists carry out, carried out two attacks using sarin gas. The convention was conceived as an effort to update the Geneva Protocol's protections and to expand the prohibition on chemical weapons beyond state actors in wartime. The convention aimed to achieve that objective by prohibiting the development, stockpiling, or use of chemical weapons by any state party or person within a state party's jurisdiction. It also established an elaborate reporting process requiring state parties to destroy chemical weapons under their control and submit to inspection and monitoring by an international organization based in The Hague, Netherlands. The Chemical Weapons Convention not only prohibits the use of chemical weapons in war, but also eliminates the threats they pose. Unlike the Geneva Protocol, the Chemical Weapons Convention prohibits not only the use of chemical weapons in war— but also prohibits all uses of chemical weapons, as well as production, development, and stockpiling of chemical weapons. Additionally, the treaty specifically recognizes chemical agents not otherwise defined as chemical weapons, like riot control agents and herbicides, and the treaty regulates their use in warfare and non-combat environments. And yes, I will be getting into the United States's very rampant use of pepper spray and riot control type rubber bullets, tear gas, etc. Uh, in protests, in civilian protests, okay, as well as many other countries around the world that do the same thing. But uh, yeah, after learning what this shit prohibits, you're going to be like, oh, they're violating an international chemical weapons treaty every single time they do that, right? Yes, correct. Correct, they are. I would argue, Your Honor. Also, unlike the Geneva Protocol, the Chemical Weapons Convention establishes an independent international agency, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, the OPCW, 
with the mission of implementing, monitoring, and enforcing the convention. So now we have like a, an enforcement body, okay, that has been created, the OCPW or the OPCW that can go in and fuck you up, okay? And the reason why they can go in and fuck you up is because by signing this situation, by signing this treaty, you're agreeing to essentially that jurisdiction, the jurisdiction of the OCPW, OPCW, wow, okay? Great. When the Chemical Weapons Convention became effective, all states' parties, that's what they call them, okay, like the, the, the states' parties, the people who showed up, okay, who people who were part of the convention, must declare to the OPCW all of their chemical weapons agents and precursor chemicals, all of their actual production facilities, and all of the facilities capable of producing chemical weapons. Next, the states' parties must systematically destroy or dismantle all the declared items not accepted under the convention as having a permitted use. The OPCW conducts its inspections based on the state's party's declarations and monitors the destruction operations. Each state party, by ratifying the Chemical Weapons Convention, agrees to grant the OPCW the requisite access to conduct inspections to verify the declarations. So this outside international uh, neutral Governing body, okay, you're allowing – come in and inspect your shit. Come into your country and check out your shit, okay? That's wild. It's wild because most countries don't fucking fuck with that. But as of today, 197 countries have said yes to it except for, okay, a few that you might find a little obvious. The OPCW may go anywhere within the inspected state party's borders that is necessary to complete the inspections, including government and private facilities. In the United States, this presents some questions regarding the application of Fourth Amendment rights. The convention, however, requires all states' parties to enact the necessary legislation to ensure the OPCW will be able to conduct its activities. While the Chemical Weapons Convention provides for restrictions on trade of chemicals and chemical technology, the convention has no power to enforce these restrictions against countries not party to the convention, which already possess this technology. Similarly, the convention does not operate against terrorist groups or other organizations which are not countries and therefore cannot be a party to the treaty. Fiji became the first state to ratify the convention— on chemical, against chemical warfare, against chemical weapons, okay, on January 20th, 1993. Woo, go VG. Go vacation, okay? Pursuant to Article 21 of the convention, it entered into force, meaning the treaty was like actually could be enforced and effective, on April 29th, 1997, after it had finally been ratified by 65 nations, all right? That was the threshold number. As of today, in 2023, a total of 197 nations have ratified or acceded to the Chemical Weapons Convention and its international treaty, which mandates the elimination of chemical warfare material and former chemical weapons production facilities, et cetera, et cetera. You get it, okay? The most recent state to ratify or accede to the convention was Palestine on May 17th, 2018. Four UN nations are not a party to this convention, this treaty, and those are Egypt, Israel, North Korea, and South Sudan. Israel has signed but not ratified the convention. They apparently take pause with the ability for the OPCW to come in and inspect. They don't want anyone inspecting their military sites, apparently. Uh, so, yeah, they've signed it but not ratified it, which means jack shit. Um, Egypt, North Korea, and South Sudan 
have neither signed nor acceded to the convention. They were like, fuck you, we're out, absolutely not, no bueno. Um, all four nations that are not parties uh, to the convention are, are suspected of possessing chemical weapons, if you were curious. This brings us to 2013. Syria had not signed it, had not acceded to the treaty against chemical weapons. Um, they weren't a part of it. So in the early morning hours of August 21st, 2013, Syrian government forces launched a series of missiles loaded with sarin gas at about half a dozen neighborhoods controlled by rebel forces. The warheads, Soviet-era M14 surface-to-surface rockets, were able to carry between 11 and 16 gallons of chemical agents apiece, with several missiles found at each attack site. Sarin is a nerve agent, an airborne poison gas that is odorless, colorless, and tasteless, making it difficult to detect. It attacks the nervous system and can cause death within minutes. While those who survive exposure experience a range of symptoms, including shortness of breath, disorientation, eye irritation, blurred vision, nausea, vomiting, and general weakness. The American response to Syria's use of chemical weapons um, was notably more disapproving than its response to the Iran-Iraq war use of chemical weapons many years prior. But they remained cautious while the details of the attack were still under investigation. As early as June of 2013, the U.S. had raised concerns that Syria was using chemical weapons against rebel forces. And while talk of aid and the possibility of establishing a no-fly zone came from the White House, ultimately, the international community decided to take a different step to preventing Syria's continued, continued use of chemical agents. Now, with everything that I've told you about chemical warfare and weapons and this treaty and what was going on in Syria at this time, okay, in 2013. The phrase chemical weapons evokes images of war-torn landscapes and battered soldiers or civilians struggling to breathe as they run from militarized death. It does not evoke images of a Pennsylvania woman sneaking around the front door car and mailbox of an ex-best friend and romantic rival who had sex with her husband and was about to have his baby. It doesn't call to mind the burbs, okay, in America. It just simply doesn't, right? But in truth, at the same exact time that the entire international theater and the most powerful people in the world be, world were being called into rooms to discuss how to deal with Syria violating provisions of the treaty. A woman in Philadelphia was about to be prosecuted under the same exact provision that these world leaders were discussing with respect to Syria. What the fuck, right? How can that possibly happen? Well, I'll tell you. Although the convention is a binding international agreement, it is not self-executing. That is, the convention creates obligations only for state parties and does not by itself give rise to domestically enforceable federal law absent implementing legislation passed by Congress. So essentially, in theory and in application, you can't – a regular person or, you know, any really people can't be um, held – 
liable under or held to have violated an international treaty pursuant to this convention, especially without some type of implementing law already put in place after the signing of this treaty by the government at hand. Okay, so like a federal statute, for example, the convention provided for this. They state, it states, quote, each state party shall, okay, meaning it's not an option, you shall, it's mandatory, in accordance with its constitutional processes, adopt the necessary measures to implement its obligations under this convention. In particular, each state party shall, meaning not an option, you have to do it, prohibit natural and legal persons anywhere under its jurisdiction from undertaking any activity prohibited to a state party under this convention, including enacting penal legislation with respect to such activity. Okay? So Congress, okay, after the signing of the situation by the U.S. finally in 1997, Congress said, okay, bet. We'll pull up to the table. We heard, okay, you signed something that required us to do something. We're going to fucking do it. Congress gave the convention domestic effect in 1998 when it passed the Chemical Weapons Convention Implementation Act. The act closely tracks the text of the treaty. It forbids any person knowingly to develop, produce, otherwise acquire, transfer directly or indirectly, receive, stockpile, retain, own, possess, or use, or threaten to use any chemical weapon. A person who violates this section, this statute, may be subject to severe punishment, imprisonment, quote, for any term of years, or if if a victim's death results, death penalty or imprisonment for life. Okay, pretty sad, pretty crazy. And I'll get into the definitions that this statute lays out of chemical weapon, of toxic chemical, peaceful purpose, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, just just give me a second. All right. So how does that lead us to our girly Carol Ann? Okay, Carol Ann Bond. Well, let's talk about her. Carol Ann Bond was a microbiologist from Lansdale, Pennsylvania. In 2006, Bond's closest friend, Merlinda Haynes, announced that she was pregnant. Exciting, right? Amazing. Bond was initially stoked. She was so happy jazzed. Um, but when Bond discovered that her husband, Bond's husband, all right, was the child's father, she sought revenge against her ex-best friend, Haynes. Bond did so by stealing a quantity of 10-chloro-10-H phenoxarzine, an arsenic-based compound, from her employer, a chemical manufacturer. She also ordered a vial of potassium dichromate, a chemical commonly used in printing photographs or cleaning lab equipment, from Amazon.com. Both chemicals are toxic to humans and in high enough doses, potentially lethal. It is undisputed, however, that Bond did not intend to kill Haynes. She instead hoped, pinky pinky square fingers crossed, that Haynes would touch the chemicals and develop an uncomfortable rash. Between November 2006 and June 2007, Bond went to the pregnant, with child, Haynes' home on at least 24 occasions and spread the chemicals on her car door, mailbox, doorknob, and mail. Her her pregnant ex-best friend, mind you, understand that you're upset, but what did that baby do to you, okay? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. These attempted assaults were almost entirely unsuccessful. Thank goodness. 
The chemicals that Bond used are easy to see, and Haynes was able to avoid them all but one time. On that occasion, Haynes suffered a minor chemical burn on her thumb, which she treated by rinsing with water. Haynes repeatedly called the local police to report the suspicious substances, but they took no action. When Haynes found powder on her mailbox, she called the police again, who told her to call the post office. The police said, oh, it's probably just cocaine. Okay, because police are really competent all the time. They told her to call the fucking post office. So Haynes said, fine, I'll call the goddamn post office. And the postal inspectors suited the fuck up. They were like, it is our time to shine. Let's ride. Okay, because if you didn't know this, there are departments within the post office that like deal with these type of crimes. Okay, deal with like mail type type shit. Okay, it is a federal crime to fuck with people's mail. To use the mail in such a way as to commit a crime and hurt people, all right? So the postal inspectors suited – they were like, hold my beer. It is my time to shine. Okay, fuck the police. A cab, postal inspect. Amazing. They placed surveillance cameras around her home. They didn't even question her. They were like, absolutely, period. We're putting up cameras 100%. The cameras caught Bond opening Haynes's mailbox – stealing an envelope, and stuffing potassium dichromate inside the muffler of Haynes's car. Crazy. I'm sorry that's crazy. Like, I get when people, you know, do, like, oh, like, I keyed, you know, I dug my keys into the side of his pretty little souped-up four-wheel drive. You know, he cheated on me. Okay. Speak your truth. The fire in your heart has not lessened in the over the course of literally eight months that you're doing this, November 2006, June 2007. Um, and also, where is that energy for your husband, girlykins? Apparently, they never got divorced. Bombastic side eye. Be so serious, girl, my girl Carol, okay? Be so genuine to reality right now. It takes two to tango. And just because your best friend's a shitty friend doesn't mean your husband wasn't infidelious, okay? He was the one who stepped out on his marriage, girlykins. Your best friend, ex-best friend, okay, right? Be mad at her because she, she's not a great friend. Um, That's not her marriage. It's not her marriage. Uh, And she's having this baby and she's having the kid. Okay, great. Your husband does not seem like a mantelpiece. It's time to take it down. Time to take it down. Time to divorce him or like figure out your fucking issues. But like if anyone deserves to have something put in his muffler, on his mail, okay, on his samalamich, um, I'm not saying that you should ever do that because absolutely not. Like, it's giving very serious crimes, as you'll see in a second. Um, but like, it's probably gonna be him. Okay, in my mind. All right, it's giving. He had it coming in Chicago, the brilliant musical and fantastic Oscar-winning film. Okay, he had it coming. He had it coming. Men just don't know how to hold their arsenic. I'm quoting the song. I'm not. These are not truths to write down. Holy hell. Okay, but that's what takes out my sympathy for this, for, for our girl Carol, okay, for our girl Caroling all the way home. Um, you're, you, if you're going to do this, all right, a pregnant woman, a pregnant mistress who's, who's literally, it's been months, she's literally about to have this kid. I'm sure it's at a certain point during these attacks, I mean, shit, over the course of seven months, she was laying these, you know, the, the powder on her fucking house. Like, get a job. Like, get a hobby. You know what I mean? Like, get a fucking, go, go to a knitting club, like, Join a gambling group, become an alcoholic, do literally anything other than this with your free time. I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. She had to have had the kid at some point during this. You know what I mean? Like, fuck, like, you're really attacking an infant baby. 
Like, this could have been bad, girly. You are lucky as hell that you are so bad at getting revenge. You're terrible at it. Boo, tomato, tomato. Zero out of 10 on Rotten Tomatoes. Thank you. Federal prosecutors naturally charged Bond with two counts of mail theft in violation of a federal statute. But um, more surprisingly, they also charged her with two counts of possessing and using a chemical weapon in violation of the implementing statute that the federal government passed in 1998 at that exact same time that the U.S. Supreme Court was considering whether Bond had violated this provision of the statute implementing the treaty, the entire globe, the entire world, hundreds of nations were also coming together to decide how they can enforce these same exact provisions of that treaty against Syria for releasing white phosphorus gas against its own civilians and basically propelling chemical weapons into neighborhoods controlled by rebel groups, allegedly. At that time, Syria had not signed the Chemical Weapons Act, the treaty, the convention. Okay, they weren't part of it. Um, But ultimately, in 2013, the U.S. bullied the fuck out of Syria and was like, sign this shit, bitch. And they were like, okay, fine. And so they finally signed it so then they could finally, you know, essentially be, be in trouble for violating its provisions. Okay? Like the U.S. be strong on them. They were like, be serious. That serious international human rights violation incident was using the same, the same copy, copy paste text as this dumb fucking Carol and Bond case of a woe man sprinkling some, some diddle do on her ex-bex friend and husband's lover's shit. Something tells me there's a, there's a divide here, right? There, there, the plot was lost. Like, the plot was lost along the way, but we're going to help find it back. We're going to help track it back. Okay, we're going to help track it back. Um, and I think you guys will enjoy Chief Justice Roberts's opinion on this. I, I personally enjoy his opinion on this. Um, you know, I don't have to enjoy him always or ever, uh, but I can respect uh, when an opinion, majority opinion is written in a way that that does its fucking job, okay, and and encapsulates what what we needed to, okay, emphasizes the debauchery that has that has come across, slid across the desk of the goddamn Supreme Court. Bond's attorneys, when she was charged with those two counts of possessing and using a chemical weapon in violation of the fucking CWA, um, her, her attorneys were like, hold the fucking phone, okay? Because essentially, by being charged under this statute, okay, for being like a literal chemical warfare weaponry person, um, her, her potential sentence was like over double what it would have been if she would have just been charged with regular shit, okay, and not this like really extreme statute and they they were kind of like this doesn't sound right at all like why are you doing this so they her attorneys moved to dismiss the chemical weapon counts on the ground that that section that statute exceeded congress's enumerated powers and invaded powers reserved to the states by the 10th amendment the district court so the lower court okay that 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 main initial court denied her attorney's motion okay they were like no can't do it she then entered a conditional guilty plea that reserved the right to appeal, okay? Basically saying, hey, um, I literally have to plead guilty at this point. Like, 
no real, no real option. Um, so like I'm reserving my right to appeal the fact that I'm convicted under this statute because like fuck that. I don't like my my punishment's gonna be way worse. But uh, like just to get this thing rolling and moving, uh, I, I enter my guilty plea. Okay. The district court, so that lower court, then sentenced Bond to six years in federal prison plus five years of supervised release and ordered her to pay a $2,000 fine and $9,900 in restitution to um, essentially her ex-best friend, Haynes, okay? Bond appealed her conviction, raising a Tenth Amendment challenge to her conviction. The government prosecution contended that Bond lacked standing to bring such a challenge and the Court of Appeals, okay, in the Third Circuit did agree they grant they they agreed okay they were like yes she doesn't have standing the supreme court granted certiorari meaning that they are going to hear this case okay because not every writ of cert that you file with the supreme court of the us begging them to take your case they don't they deny most of them okay they're like no I'm not, we're not hearing that you know what i mean like deal with the decision that you got they granted cert okay to to determine whether she even has standing to, like, challenge whether she can be convicted under this statute, okay? And that case is boring. <laughs> the Supreme Court in 2011, okay, so, th- so three years before this case was issued, this opinion was issued, already said, yes, she has standing to challenge her conviction. But because that was the only issue up for certiorari, okay, up, up on appeal, that's the only thing that the U.S. Supreme Court could opine on, could could give their their stance on, could give their thoughts on. Okay, they were like, "Yes, she has standing." They reversed the holding of the Third Circuit uh, Court of Appeal and said, "You're wrong. She has standing. So decide the case." So they remanded it back. They, as in the U.S. Supreme Court, it was remanded back. Okay, the Third Circuit said, "Okay, fine." <sighs> Mom and Dad said that she has standing, so she has fucking standing. Um, but then they rejected her argument, basically saying that, no, um, you, you could be tried under this statute. Okay. You could be charged for it. She bond argued that sex, this section, the statute does not reach her conduct because the statute's exception for the use of chemicals for quote, peaceful purposes should be understood in contradistinction to the quote, warlike activities that the convention was primarily designed to prohibit. Bond argued that her conduct, though reprehensible, was not at all warlike, essentially saying, look, okay, be be very genuine to what's happening in front of us right now. There's no way that this statute is really intended to convict, to try this type of shit, right? Like, this is not the shit that they're, this is not, it's not that part, right? This is not the story, the plot, the storyline that we're going for. Um, And the court disagreed. The Court of Appeals said no. The court acknowledged, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals acknowledged that the government's reading, okay, the prosecution's reading of this section would render the statute striking in its breadth, so basically like insane in its scope, and turn every kitchen covered and cupboard and cleaning cabinet in America into a potential chemical weapons cachet, which is literally correct. But then they said in the next sentence, The court nevertheless held that Bond's use of highly toxic chemicals with the intent of harming hands can hardly be characterized as peaceful under that word's commonly understood meaning. End quote. So they upheld her conviction in the Third Circuit. Okay, so like they basically acknowledge that 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 they're holding. Okay, they're them allowing basically Bond to be convicted under the statute will have a public policy implication that is wide and crazy 
every kitchen cupboard and cabinet in America will be an arms cache. Anytime you have fucking ammonia in that bitch, okay, uh, could potentially could potentially be charged on the statue. But like again, like we're we're not really like looking at the word peaceful, like in comparison to warlike. We're looking at peaceful, just like period. Whether it was peaceful, whether what you did was peaceful, and it was not. So you're shy luck. Uh, yeah. So. In addition to other arguments that they rejected, okay, they were like, fuck you, okay? You get convicted on this on this statute, you're done. And so, of course, Bond, again, filed a writ of certiorari with the U.S. Supreme Court and said, hi, can you look at this again? Hey, bestie, hey, queen. Hey, babe. Hey, Chief Justice Roberts and company. Um, I'm back. And yes, you said I have standing. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, but also, do I, can I be convicted on this fucking statute? Let me know. And the Supreme Court granted certiorari, okay? They said, okay, we'll hear it again. We'll hear it. We will hear it. So this is the opinion, okay, the opinion. And to start off, I'm going to explain to you what this statute defines, okay, this this Chemical Weapons Convention Implementation Act statute that she was convicted under. What does it define in terms of these chemical weapons, et cetera, okay? It defines chemical weapon as a, quote, toxic chemical and its precursors, except were intended for a purpose not prohibited under this chapter, as long as the type and quantity is consistent with such a purpose. Toxic chemical, in turn, is defined as any chemical which, through its chemical action on life processes, can cause death, temporary incapacitation, or permanent harm to humans or animals. The term includes all such chemicals, regardless of their origin or of their method of production, and regardless of whether they are produced in facilities, in munitions, or elsewhere. Finally, quote, purposes not prohibited by this chapter is defined as any peaceful purpose related to an industrial, agricultural, research, medical, or pharmaceutical activity or other activity. Okay. So like, yes, when we think of all those definitions in the context of Carol and Bond, we think, yeah, she's fucked. But when we think of these definitions in the context of like what they're trying to prevent, which is, oh, I don't know, international chemical weapons being produced for global warfare and sold and uh, proliferated and stockpiled. Yeah, those definitions make sense. Okay. So what does the court do with this? Right. What can they do with it? In our federal system, the national government possesses only limited powers. The states and the people retain the remainder. The states have broad authority to enact legislation for the public good, what we have often called a police power. The federal government, by contrast, has no such authority and can exercise only the powers granted to it, including the power to make, quote, all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the enumerated powers. Okay, which is a wordy way of saying federal government can enact laws that allow it to do its job that the Constitution says it has. Amazing. For nearly two centuries, it has been clear that lacking a police power, Congress cannot punish felonies generally. Okay, a criminal act committed wholly within a state cannot be made an offense against the U.S. unless it has some relation to the execution of a power of Congress or to some matter within the jurisdiction of the United States. The government frequently defends criminal legislation on the ground that the legislation is authorized pursuant to Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce. This section, this statute, exists to implement the convention. 
So the court starts with this international agreement, okay? As explained, the convention's drafters intended for it to be a comprehensive ban on chemical weapons. But even with its broadly worded definitions, the court has doubts that a treaty about chemical weapons and in italics has anything to do with Bond's conduct, period. Mind you, they italicized chemical weapons, okay? They're like, hey, if you're wondering where a fucking opinion is going, that's a hint. They think that this is absurd. The convention, a product of years of worldwide study, analysis, and multinational negotiation, arose in response to war crimes and acts of terrorism. There is no reason to think the sovereign nations that ratified the convention were interested in anything like Bond's common law assault. Even if the treaty does reach that far, the court reasons, nothing prevents Congress from implementing the convention in the same manner it legislates with respect to countless other matters. Observing the Constitution's division of responsibility between sovereigns and leaving the prosecution of purely local crimes to the states. The convention, after all, is agnostic between enforcement at the state versus federal level. It provides that, quote, each state party shall, in all bold cap underlines, in accordance with its constitutional processes, adopt the necessary measures to implicate implement its obligations under this convention. Fortunately, we, as in this court, have no need to interpret the scope of the convention in this case. Bond was only prosecuted under Section 229 of the statute passed by Congress in 1998, and the statute, unlike the convention, must be read consistent with principles of federalism inherent in our constitutional structure. So essentially, the Supreme Court is saying in Bond v. U.S., um, hi, yeah, we don't really give a fuck uh, <laughs> what the treaty says because, right, the implementing statute has to still be in line with our constitutional principles of federalism, um, separation between the branchesies, the branches, and, you know, the whole idea that uh, the uh, that Congress itself cannot do anything, federal government cannot do anything that isn't actually enumerated and its powers under the Constitution. In the government's view, the Supreme Court says, the conclusion that Bond knowingly used a chemical weapon in violation of Section 229A is simple. The chemicals that Bond placed on Haynes's home and car are toxic chemicals as defined by the statute, and Bond's attempt to assault Haynes was not a, quote, peaceful purpose. The problem with this interpretation, the court says, is that it would dramatically intrude upon traditional state criminal jurisdiction, and we avoid reading criminal statutes to have such reach in the absence of a clear indication that they do, okay? And here there's just none of that clear indication. Part of a fair reading of statutory text is recognizing that Congress legislates against the backdrop of certain unexpressed presumptions. In other words, you can't possibly only interpret in an originalist-ass fucking view. I'm side-eyeing the originalists here, Thomas. I'm out for blood. You can't read words and statutes and legislation in a vacuum. You cannot possibly think, oh, well, the definition of peaceful purpose isn't this one. Okay, bitch, well... I don't think that she's the fucking player here that they're trying to get at, all right? You need to look at the context. You need to read the fucking room that the shit was written in, okay? You just have to. It is a moving parts analysis, and there's a lot of them, oftentimes. 
As Justice Frankfurter put in his famous essay on statutory interpretation, correctly reading a statute demands awareness of certain presuppositions. For example, we presume that a criminal statute derived from the common law carries with it the requirement of a culpable mental state, even if no such limitation appears in the text, unless it is clear that the legislature intended to impose strict liability. Okay? Great. To take an... To take another example, we presume, absent a clear statement from Congress, that federal statutes do not apply outside the United States. So even though Section 229, all right, this statute from 1998 implementing the Chemical Weapons Act convention situation, even though that on its face it would cover technically a chemical weapons crime if committed by a U.S. citizen in Australia— We would not apply the statute to such conduct absent a plain statement from Congress. The notion that some things, quote, go without saying applies to legislation just just as it does to everyday life, okay? Not everything is fucking insane. Imagine fucking that. The court mentions a few examples of this in practice, essentially um, making things fucking logical, okay? And the way that they're applied, interpreted, especially when it comes to the federal government Uh, enforcing things, okay, within the states, among and within the states. It mentions a case called Bass versus U.S. In that case, the Supreme Court interpreted a statute that prohibited any convicted felon from, quote, receiving, possessing, or transporting in commerce or affecting commerce any firearm, end quote. The government argued in that case that the statute barred felons from possessing all firearms and that it was not necessary to demonstrate a connection between them owning that firearm, possessing that firearm, et cetera, and interstate commerce, okay, in order to apply this felony, okay? Because, again, we're talking about federal law here, only federal laws. The court rejected that reading of the statute, which would render, quote, traditionally local criminal conduct a matter for federal enforcement and would also involve a substantial extension of federal police forces. The court instead read the statute more narrowly to require proof of a connection to interstate commerce in every case, thereby preserving as an element of all of the offenses a requirement suited to federal criminal jurisdiction alone. Because remember, Federal shit, it's interstate commerce. That's the only way that the federal government can really get entangled, okay? That's why you see, like, criminal shows, they'll be like, we should get the feds involved when, like, a child is brought across state lines. That's why, okay? Because kidnapping a child across state lines implicates uh, interstate commerce. It affects that, okay? You understanding? Amazing. Justice, Chief Justice Roberts goes on to say, these precedents make clear that it is appropriate to refer to basic principles of federalism embodied in the Constitution to resolve ambiguity in a federal statute. In this case, the ambiguity derives from the improbably broad reach of the key statutory definition given the term, quote, chemical weapon being defined. The deeply serious consequences of adopting such a boundless reading and the lack of any apparent need to do so in light of the context from which the statute arose, a treaty about chemical warfare and terrorism. We conclude that in this curious case, (laughs) we can insist on a clear indication that Congress meant to reach purely local crimes. Before interpreting the statute's expansive language in a way that intrudes on the police power power of the states. 
Right. What's the translation here? Um, essentially, uh, Congress had better have very clearly included their intent to uh, get up and uh, get up in people's business that fucking hard when it comes to a chemical warfare, chemical weapons treaty. Okay. Basically, the Supreme Court's like, so that's that's what we conclude, that that's what we need here. So let's turn to whether we see that, okay? And your spoiler alert is going to be uh, probably a no, right? Probably a fucking no. We do not find any such clear indication in Section 229. Chemical weapon, quote unquote, is the key term that defines the statute's reach, and it is defined extremely broadly. But that general definition does not constitute a clear statement that Congress meant the statute to reach local criminal conduct. In fact, a fair reading of Section 229 suggests that it does not have as expansive a scope as might first appear. To begin, as a matter of natural meaning, an educated user of English, (laughs) honestly, pause, that's kind of a bar, that's kind of a diss, to be like, hey, so loving your enthusiasm, loving your interp, loving that way of doing things, Um, an educated user of English, unlike yourself, might might not agree. Moving on. <laughs> An educated user of English would not describe Bond's crime as involving a, quote, chemical weapon. Saying that a person used a chemical weapon conveys a very different idea than saying the person used a chemical weapon in a way that caused some harm. The natural meaning of chemical weapon takes account of both the particular chemicals that the defendant used and the circumstances in which she used them. When used in the manner here, the chemicals in this case are not of the sort, not of the sort, that an ordinary person would associate with instruments of chemical warfare. Don't you love court opinions like this, where it very much feels like someone just clenching their jaw in a board meeting and going, okay, I didn't know that we didn't have the foundation here, right, um, that, that I was expecting from a bunch of fourth graders. So let's break it down. We close our mouths when people are speaking and we politely raise your hand if we would like to be called. Does everyone understand? Like it's giving taught, like it's giving like, let's break this down. And yes, of course, this is so necessary. This is typical statutory interpretation. But just in this context, it's just funny to me. Like I would love, I would love to have seen the prosecutor's fucking face when they read this opinion, you know, when they got the L, got the fat L and been like this. (laughs) Each paragraph just like, fuck. Damn it. We tried. We tried to put this very dangerous criminal away, which, yeah, like kind of a fucking criminal. You know what I mean? Like kind of dangerous as fuck, kind of off her rails. But like she needs therapy. Like, goddamn, there are rapists running around. Like, you know what I mean? Like reassess your focus. Thank you. When used in the manner here, the chemicals in this case are not of the sort that an ordinary person would associate with instruments of chemical warfare. The substances that Bond used bear little resemblance to the deadly toxins that are of particular danger to the objectives of the convention. Why we need a chemical weapons convention and an OPCW, blah, blah, blah. Oh, my God. More to the point, the use of something as a weapon typically connotes an instrument of offensive or defensive combat or an instrument of attack or defense in combat as a gun, missile, or sword. But no educated English speaker (laughs) in natural parlance would describe Bond's feud-driven act of spreading irritating chemicals on Haynes' doorknob and mailbox as, quote, combat. 
nor do the other circumstances of Bond's offense, an act of revenge born of romantic jealousy, meant to cause discomfort that produced nothing more than a minor thumb burn, suggest that a chemical was deployed in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Potassium dichromate and 10-chloro-10-H phenixarcine might be chemical weapons if used, say, to poison a city's water supply, but Bond's crime is worlds apart from such hypotheticals, and covering it would give the statute a reach exceeding the ordinary meaning of the words Congress wrote. What a beautiful paragraph. No notes needed. In settling on a fair reading of a statute, it is not unusual to consider the ordinary meaning of a defined term, particularly when there is dissonance between that ordinary meaning and the reach of the definition. The government would have us brush aside the ordinary meaning and adopt a reading of Section 229 that would sweep in everything from the detergent under the kitchen sink to the stain remover in the laundry room. Yet no one would ordinarily describe those substances as chemical weapons. The government responds that because Bond used specialized, highly toxic, though legal, chemicals, this case presents no occasion to address whether Congress intended Section 229 to apply to common household substances. But that argument sucks. That the statute would apply so broadly, however, is the inescapable conclusion of the government's position, the prosecution's position here. Any parent would be guilty of a serious federal offense, possession of a chemical weapon when exacerbated by the children's repeated failure to clean the goldfish's tank. He considers poisoning the fish with a few drops of vinegar. We are reluctant to ignore the ordinary meaning of chemical weapon when doing so would transform a statute passed to implement the fucking International Convention on Chemical Weapons into one that also makes it a federal offense to poison goldfish. That would not be a realistic assessment of congressional intent. Another bop. In light of all of this, it is fully appropriate to apply the background assumption that Congress normally preserves the constitutional balance between the national government of the states. The government's, the prosecution's, reading of Section 229 would alter sensitive federal-state relationships, convert an astonishing amount of traditionally local criminal conduct into a matter for federal enforcement, and involve a substantial extension of federal police resources. It would transform the statute from one whose core concerns are acts of war, assassination, and terrorism into a massive federal anti-poisoning regime that reaches the simplest of assaults. As the government, the prosecution reads Section 229, hardly a poisoning in the land would fall outside the federal statute's domain, which is bonkers. Of course, Bond's contact is serious and unacceptable and against the laws of Pennsylvania. But the background principle that Congress does not normally intrude upon the police power of the states is critically important. In light of that principle, we are reluctant to conclude that Congress meant to punish Bond's crime with a federal prosecution for a chemical weapons attack. It is also clear that the laws of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and every other goddamn state are sufficient to prosecute Bond. Basically, the Supreme Court's like, okay, also, by the way, if you're worried that we're just trying to let her off, like, no. Like, there's other laws you can apply, babes. Like, why are you trying to be creative here? It's not that serious. Pennsylvania has several statutes that would likely cover her assault. Simple assault, reckless endangerment, harassment, and state authorities regularly enforce these laws in poisoning cases. Okay? And they list a bunch. Yes, Chief Justice Roberts says, Section 229 implements the convention. 
gathered, okay? We're picking up what you're putting down. But Bond's crime could hardly be more unlike the uses of mustard gas on the Western Front or nerve agents in the Iran-Iraq war that formed the core concerns of that treaty. There are no life-sized paintings of Bond's rival washing her thumb. (laughs) And there are no apparent interests of the United States Congress or the community of nations in seeing Bond end up in federal prison rather than dealt with like virtually all other criminals in Pennsylvania by the state. The Solicitor General acknowledged as much at oral argument. Quote, I don't think anybody would say that whether or not Ms. Bond is prosecuted would give rise to an international incident. End quote. Chief Justice Roberts ends with this. In sum, the global need to prevent chemical warfare does not require the federal government to reach into the kitchen cupboard or to treat a local assault with a chemical irritant as the deployment of a chemical weapon. There is no reason to suppose that Congress, in implementing the Convention on Chemical Weapons, thought otherwise. The judgment of the Court of Appeals is reversed, and the case is remanded for further proceedings. Okay? Reverse and remanded. AKA, like, you fucked up again. All right? Good try, but no. Good try, but no cigar. Okay? So, her sentencing, I guess, her conviction under the statute was vacated, and uh, her sentence was obviously much lower. And by this time, it's what? Fucking 2013? Uh, Yeah. She's out by now. Okay? She's fucking out. But, hey, there you fucking have it. All right? She she gets her flowers. She gets her tens. um, And that poor fucking child, I hope, is far, far away from her. Goddamn. The rebuttal for this week's episode is that you need to watch your mouth, okay? You need to watch your mouth. You need to watch your hands. Watch and wash. You need to do all of those things because in watching your mouth, you'll make sure, okay, you'll make sure that you're directing your harassment and attacks to the right party, okay? The right person at fault, okay? The one who actually really fucked up the most, okay, in a situation, right? It's giving husband, right? It's giving husband. When in doubt, look to the husband, okay? I'm not saying that a mistress isn't totally, yes, definitely horrible person for sure, but like, let's refocus. Let's reassess, okay? You need to wash your hands. Watch, watch and wash your hands because you never know um, when your revenge, when your vengeance plans, planned out may may implicate some concerns with some chemical warfare, okay? You do not want your name to be appearing next to the words mustard and gas. Not a great way to go out, okay? Keep it cute. Keep it cute. Keep it on mute, all right? Uh, go to go to like a destruction room, a rage room. Get your, get your rage out that way, okay? Assault and battery on a pregnant woman, not so much. Not so much. Um, and you need to watch your feet as well, right? You need to watch your feet as well. If you, um, you know, are in a sitch that's pretty ass, right? Husband's cheating on you, has a, you know, a woman is with child, an ex-best friend is with child. Um, you need to use your feet. You need to watch them and you need to see if they're moving, okay? If they can move. Um, but get you the fuck out of there. You know what I mean? I'm a Sagittarius, okay? When in doubt, we run. We fucking sprint, about it there. And it's never done me wrong ever, Infinity. Um, move your fucking body away from the toxic, horrible people that are around you, surrounding you. Reassess, regroup, and rebuild. Okay? Instead of doing all of this. This was too much. Okay? Do less. The rebuttal is do less. <laughs> Love you guys. Thank you. If you're watching on YouTube, hello. Love you. How are you? Follow us everywhere. I'll see you next time. Hope you enjoyed.
Kisses from your girl. Bye, guys. <laughs>